Good morning, guys. My name is Justin, uh, one of the pastors here. Glad to see you guys enjoying each other's company, filling back up on coffee. Uh, really welcome you. Want to give a special welcome to anyone who's new. If you're new to Midtown, we're especially excited that you're here. Glad that you're checking things out, uh, particularly if you're new in the sense that you're maybe investigating uh, the Christian faith. We hope that this is a welcome place for you to do so. Um, I just found out that the Allens, those of you who know, know the Allens, they're having their baby right now, so we'll, pr- we'll pray, for, pray for them in a minute. So uh, that's exciting. Um, I want to encourage you too, just one more, one more encouragement to fill out these connection cards. It really is a great way for us to stay connected, know who's here, uh, find out what things you want to be involved in and ways you want to get connected. So I would hope that you do that sometime during the service. Like when, I'm, when it gets really boring with the things I'm saying, it's a perfect time to go ahead and just fill out the connection card. Um, welcome again to Lee Elementary. It's our second Sunday here. That's pretty fun, right? We got lots of uh, great feedback from people that said that they loved it. Feels like home. Uh, we also heard that the seats are a little uncomfortable. Yeah, they, after all, they were built, built like in 1939. So you're sitting in like some really ancient chairs. One person told me, they're like, hey, we want to bring cushions next week. And I said, yes, you should. That would be awesome. Let's like make that a thing. Like let's all just walk in with our cushions, kind of like a tailgate when you see the people walk with the little, little chairs for their bleachers. We'll just be like a cushion church. You can bring an extra one to pass out to a buddy. Let's do it. Uh, we're going to continue our series. Last week was really fun uh, just to have a celebration to talk about the whole history of the church. And it was a great way, I think, for us to, to really usher in this new season of being a church and meeting in this school. So today we're going to jump back in the book of Acts. And uh, it's one that I've known. Jake and I kind of set out the sermon series this summer. And so I've known it's been on the schedule for a while and I've been a little nervous about it because it's one of those passages that talks about really fun things like money. Yeah, that's real fun. And, and actually, a couple people die because they don't give enough money. So it's going to be great, right? Welcome to Midtown. Uh, y'all can lock the doors back there. We're going to see, see how this goes. Um, really, it's actually a, a really incredible passage, uh, one that I think that, God willing, we'll get a lot out of, which I'll definitely pray toward, and you can pray for me because I need it as well. Um, I mentioned a few weeks ago when we were in Acts chapter 2 that one of the things that Luke does is he's kind of telling the, the history of the church, this first church, the, the birth of this new movement, is sometimes he'll take a step back and instead of describing what's happening, he'll actually do like a summary report and say, here's what the church was like. And so we did that first one in Acts 2, uh, 42 through 47, and this is the second one of those summary reports. It starts off with that. It's a beautiful report that shows how the, the church was given a mission and how they were so unified, so, so much oneness among them that they actually shared everything with each other. So that's going to be the fun part. But then we get actually two examples, a positive example and a bad example of this type of generosity. And so that's what we're going to look at today. Um, why don't I pray for us and I'll give you a chance to pray for yourself and for me as well. Father, we do uh, just look at this uh, passage humbly, ask it as we see this first century church, that you would inspire our hearts to, to follow their model, uh, show us how to do it in our day, 2,000 years later. And we ask, Lord, from these two examples, one positive, one negative, that you would cause our hearts to, to love you uh, and to fear you and to love each other. Ask, Lord, that you would speak. Uh, your Holy Spirit's the one who does the work whenever your word's proclaimed. And so we just, our trust is in you, not in uh, the vessel or communicator. Uh, ask that everyone's heart here would be open just to hear from you in a unique way, uh, because you know us all. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, let's read this first summary report. This is in Acts chapter 4. All the believers were one heart and one mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions were their own. 
They shared everything they had, and with great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And God's grace was so powerfully at work on them, that, on, on all of them, that there were no needy persons among them. From time to time, those who owned land and houses sold them, brought the money from, from the sales, and put it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to anyone who had need. Wonderful report. I'm going to start with the first point of one of the things that you see when they're just describing what this church was like, was that they were committed to mission. It says that they were with great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord. Now, we've been talking a lot about mission. You kind of can't help it when you're teaching through Acts because the church is constantly sharing the gospel and more and more people are coming to faith. In the first summary report, if you remember, it said that, that God was adding daily those that were being saved. So we're going to have lots of chance to talk about mission, so I'm not going to focus on this one, but I do want to mention it, a few things about it. First is that it says that they were doing it in God's power, that God's power was upon them, which should instantly draw your mind back to Acts 1.8. Remember in Acts 1.8, it's kind of like the summary verse, or it's like the outline for the book of Acts, and it's when Jesus said that you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you'll be my witnesses to the ends of the earth. And so it was the Holy Spirit's power that was at work within them. Sometimes you can be like me, you can get caught up in thinking that we have to make things work, but it's actually the Spirit's power that was at work in them and that can be at work with us. Second thing that I'd like to point out real simply is all that they did was testify to the resurrection of the Lord. These are some of the original people who saw the risen Lord, and all they're doing is testifying. Again, if you're like me, sometimes you think that you have to try to convince people or, or be smarter than, or what if you can't answer their question? The thing that Jesus told them that they were going to do is they were simply going to be witnesses, and witnesses just tell what they've seen. They tell what God's done for them. About a week and a half ago, I, I had a pretty interesting story. I was, I was driving into HEB to go pick something up for the church, and I see this dude just go flying through the parking lot, running as fast as he can. And then there's another guy running after him. I instantly think, like, this is like a robbery, like something's happening right here. So I see this guy get in a getaway car, whip out around the coffee bean, and get on to 41st to go to I-35. And so I decided, I'm going to follow this dude. So I get on the phone, and I immediately call 911. I'm like, yeah, I think I'm following someone who just got robbed, or someone who just robbed someone. And, and so we are driving on I-35, like in a chase, like a literal chase. Like I'm behind this, describing the vehicle, giving the plates to the cops until finally he makes an illegal turn. And I waited like 10 seconds, and then I made an illegal turn. <laughs> and then I couldn't stick up with him once he got on the highway. Now, they told me I had to come in for an interview, and they said, hey, it's possible that if this goes to court, you're going to have to testify. What does testify mean? What does it mean to be drawn in as a witness? All it says is I'm going to exactly say what I saw. I'm going to say what happened. And we get caught up sometimes when we think about Jesus' call for us to be witnesses, and I want to try to release the burden to say what God wants us to do is just testify to what God's done in our life. And this was something that this first church was deeply committed to. They continued to testify about the resurrection now, before we move on to the bulk of the passage, which is really talks more about their oneness and the way that they met every single person's need, and that really ties into the two examples that we're going to see, so that's the main point, I do want to say one more thing about mission. When these guys were committed to this, this actually fueled their oneness. Sometimes we think that like, we can either need to be like outwardly focused or inwardly focused, and it's kind of a both and. And I would even argue that as we're outwardly focused, what that can do is that can create an inward oneness. When I worked for a campus renewal uh, campus ministry for about 20 years at UT, one of our main purposes, really the main purpose, was we helped unite the 60 different ministries on campus to work together. Now, how do you get 60 different ministries to actually work on being one and working together? I'll tell you one thing we couldn't do. We couldn't focus on oneness. We couldn't say, hey, we've got to be unified. We've got to be unified and try to say that unity is the goal 
because unity is really a dead-end goal. You can't make it happen. But what happens when you actually bring 60 ministries together and point to something that you want to accomplish together, unity happens. Because now you're united around a person, you're united around the person of Jesus, you're united around his goal to reach every student with the gospel. And that creates the oneness that we see in this church. So I don't want it to be lost as we start to talk about oneness to, to don't, don't disassociate the mission that they had as not being part of what created the oneness that you're going to experience here. Mission was part of what kept them united because they had a plan to do what Jesus said, to be his witnesses. In this case, it's starting off in all of Jerusalem. In fact, later, I think it's actually next week in chapter, chapter 5, we're going to see that it says they filled all of Jerusalem with their teaching. So they did it. <laughs> that first church filled the entire city with the gospel, and that's what kept them unified. Let's look now a little bit at their oneness. It says, first of all, that they are of one heart and one mind. I don't think that the, the generosity that we see is the main thing. I think the main thing is the oneness, because the oneness caused the outpouring of the generosity. Because they were so united and saw themselves as one body with one mission and one place that they were going together, they lost their self-identity. And this is really what oneness is. If we can get to a place where we're no longer thinking about ourselves and we don't even begin to identify as an individual, instead we see ourselves as part of a community, a covenant community, this, this new first church that's, that's going to accomplish what Jesus said together, that we band together and we need each other. And this is what happened with this church. They began to not identify as individuals, but they so identified as now being part of a movement, part of the body of Christ, drawn into God's family, that they lost their individual identity. And it became to be that we have one identity. And so in that case, what's yours is mine. What's mine is yours. And they had this freedom just to be completely generous with all they had because they never looked at things in terms of mine and yours. It's ours because we're the body. It's really not unlike what a marriage is supposed to be like. Biblically, in marriage, it says that the man and the woman become one. I was uh, talking with one of our uh, guys at the church that's more recently married um, in one of our huddles this week, and he was just telling a funny story about how he was just reminded that he can't make his own decisions now. Like, every time he's thinking through things, he has to think through the grid of his wife, and like, we're one, and now everything I do, there's two people that are involved because we're one. This was the type of body of Christ. This is the description that Luke's giving, that they were so united as one body that they're completely generous with everything that they had. Now, let's talk a little bit about this whole selling houses, because I don't want us to walk away and feel like we have to sell our houses tomorrow. Some of you just bought houses. Sorry, you got to sell them. Not really. It says that there are no needy people among them. Now, and about selling houses, I did a little research on this, and it was estimated at the time of, of this, when this was happening, only about 10% of people actually owned houses. So the whole idea of, of selling your house would have been pretty rare. That's why it actually says in the Scripture, from time to time, people sold their houses. But some people felt so led by God to do it that they actually sold their houses and just gave all the money. But it just happened from time to time, and only 10% of people could have even done it in the first place. Overall, the church in Jerusalem was actually a poor church. They were generally a poor people compared to the missionary journeys. When they start doing the missionary journeys to the Gentile cities, then there's, there's actually wealthier churches. You'll see that. I'll talk about it in a bit later. But let me point out a few things about the house selling. One thing to remember is that it was not mandated. So it wasn't a command. You never see them being commanded that you're supposed to sell your houses. And this is really the biblical way of thinking about giving, that this is just a free will. People did this on their own, motivated by the gospel. They were that generous. Remember we talked about de the difference between descriptive and prescriptive? Particularly when you read like a narrative book of the Bible like Acts, you have to look at the things that are being described 
And then you have to do with a lot of discernment and listening to the Holy Spirit, and then mostly cross-referencing with other scriptures that are prescriptive, determine what does this mean for us today? So you could look at this and say, oh, well, we all have to go sell our houses. Or you can say, no, as you read the whole of the New Testament, the general posture, the broadest posture, prescriptively when it comes to giving, is we're supposed to give out of the joy of our hearts, that God loves a cheerful, cheerful giver. That's 2 Corinthians 9, 7, that says that each person should decide in their own heart what they feel led to give, because God loves cheerful giving. And so that's really the overall posture in the New Testament. Third thing that I find really interesting is other people kept their houses. So you're going to get there probably in the spring, but when we get to Acts chapter 12, Peter gets arrested, he gets miraculously set out of prison, and then he goes back to this prayer meeting that's happening at this lady Mary's house. She had a house, and it was a house big enough that the body of Christ was there gathering and praying. And so some people sold their houses, some people didn't. The other thing I'll point out is in this passage in particular is it's not about equity. When it's saying that people's needs were met, it's saying that no one was needy among them, but that doesn't mean that everyone was on an equal playing field or just everyone had the same amount of money. Because that wouldn't make sense with tons of other scriptures that we get. So if you look particularly like at the book of James, James talks a lot about to the poor and the rich and how they're supposed to treat one another. Even in James chapter 2, it wouldn't make any sense if everyone was equal, right? Because in James chapter 2, he's encouraging them to not show favoritism to the rich people that come and worship with them. Or you could take actually the, the biggest passage on giving in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. It's where Paul is encouraging these churches. He's on his journey back to Jerusalem, which was a poor church, and he's asking the wealthier churches that he's visiting along the way to give so that he can give this big gift to the poor church. So there weren't even just poor and richer individuals in a church. There's actually poor and richer churches. Now, Paul was trying to get the richer churches to help out. Or really would make sense when you think about this command in 1 Timothy chapter 6. When Paul's writing, uh, pastor of the church in Ephesus, and he says in this chapter 6, command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but put their hope in God, who richly provides everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good and be rich in good deeds and to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they'll store up treasures for themselves, a firm foundation for the coming age so they can take hold of the life that is truly life. Paul's writing, acknowledging that there are rich people that are part of this church that Timothy's leading, and he's given specific commands for those that have more money to be generous, to not put their hope in it, to not be arrogant, but to put their hope in God and be generous in deeds, not just in wealth, and to give generously. So this wasn't about equity. I want to commend our church on this. Um, I, don't, I only know part of the stories, but I just started thinking this week about some of the stories that I've heard in the way that we care for each other's needs, and I've seen it in tremendous ways. Uh, without calling out names, there's people I know who've housed others while their house was either being constructed or their house was having some sort of a problem. Uh, there's people who've taken in hurting people or homeless people, taken them into their homes and cared for them. That's, you guys have done that. I found out this week that there was a coworker of one of our people who was kind of down and out, and it turned out that one of our other people who had just bought a house had like a, a month left on their apartment. And they said, well, why don't your friend just stay at our apartment for free? Like we're doing this, guys. I know of at least three cars who've been, that have been given away. And one car that's actually purchased for somebody. Like they pooled money together and bought someone a car. Like we're doing this. I know of MC, as our Midtown communities, at Midtown communities who've pooled resources together. And they've, they've put money together to help someone in their MC go to counseling. I know of individuals 
who've noticed someone that they, know, that they love that they felt like needed to see a professional counselor, and they just said, look, man, I'll, I'll pay for it. This stuff's happening in our churches. We had our women's retreat just a few weeks ago, and I know that there were two, people, two individuals who gave enough money to scholarship several of our students to be able to go on a women's retreat. I know someone who actually had their coffee pot broken this week, and someone else brought them a new coffee pot. I mean, we're talking like simple things that happen as the body of Christ begins to so identify that what's mine and yours, there, there is no mine and yours. What's mine is yours, let alone all the babies that are being born and the, the countless numbers of meals that have been provided for everybody. And this is what I love about this. None of it is commanded. No one told you guys to do this stuff, but you're doing it because you've been changed by the gospel and moved by God to care for one another. And this is exactly what happens. We have a benevolence fund. I think I mentioned this a few weeks ago, that part of the money that you guys give on a Sunday morning or online actually gets put into a pool where even as the church, like it said about the apostles, it says they, just, they distribute, it, distributed this to whoever had need. We do the same for people that come to us and say that they have a need. So we want you to know that if you have a financial need, the church, not just individuals, can help. So be encouraged that this is happening. Like this is happening among our body. You guys are modeling it just as they did. But the question is why? What was it that motivated them to do it? And this is what I love. If you go to Acts 4.34, it says, God's grace was so powerfully at work in them that there were no needy persons among them. What was it that motivated them to give? It was the grace of God. It was the things that God was doing in their lives. And their response to the gospel, knowing how what Jesus had done for them, allowed them. It changed their heart to the degree that then they were able to do that to others because Jesus let everything go for us, gave up all of his rights as deity to pursue us. And it was that truth that as they believed it more and more and more, they began to do the same freely for other people. This was what motivated them, and this was what motivates us. Now, this was a descriptive, right? This is, again, Luke describing what the early church looked like. But I want to look at one passage that I find to be like eerily similar that's prescriptive. It's one where Paul's writing to the Philippian church, and he's telling them, the stuff that happened in Acts, he's going to now say, I command you to do this as well. This is from uh, Philippians 2. Therefore, I urge you, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort in his love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete. Listen to this command. By being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit, one in mind. It's the same thing that was described of the church. Now he's saying, I want you guys to do this. Be of one mind. And how do you practice this oneness? By doing nothing out of selfish ambition. Remember those words because we'll come back to it. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, looking not to your own interest, but to the interests of others. How do we do this? What could possibly motivate us to get to a point where we're actually seeing others in the body of Christ as more important than ourselves? Where we quite naturally are always looking to the needs of others before we're looking to the needs of ourselves. There's only one thing that can change our hearts, and Paul mentions it next. He says, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. So how can we get to the spot where our hearts 
are naturally postured to care about each other more than we care about ourselves, it's only by continually preaching the gospel to ourselves and reminding ourselves what Jesus had done, how he forsook everything that was rightfully his own to die for us. That's why we celebrate communion every week. It's a chance, again, for us to be reminded of that, to come to the table and remember how Jesus has loved us and let it change our hearts that then we can love others the same way. Let's move on now to the good example. We've got Barnabas, old Barney, Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold a field he owned and brought money and put it at the apostles' feet. So what do we know real quickly here just about Barnabas? One, we know he's from Cyprus. That means that he was not raised in, in Jerusalem. So he was Jewish because he's from the Levite tribe, but, but sometime either during the Assyrian invading or the Babylonian invading, where all the Jews were kind of spread out everywhere, he landed in Cyprus. Which coincidentally, it makes him a perfect missionary buddy with, with Paul later in the book you're going to see because he's got this Greek background. We know he had wealth. If we said 10% of the people owned land, we know that he must have been pretty wealthy, that he had something that he could sell. He had to have been in the top 10% financially for those people in that day. And then we know that he's growing in influence. We know that in a couple ways. We know it because the apostles start to name him. They give him a nickname, Son of Encouragement. He's starting to stand out. People notice him. But they notice him not because of the money that he gave. They notice him because of his character. They notice him because he's a son of encouragement. Y'all like nicknames? Like, it's kind of like a sign of like you're in, you're like in the crowd once you get a nickname. In, in uh, honor of Tori uh, Branco, who left our church this last week to move to Atlanta, we're all very sad of that. He was like Mr. Nickname Guy for our MC. So, so we, you know, we didn't have Kelly in our group, we had Kelbell. We didn't have Mary in our group, we had Mare Bear. We didn't have my wife Brenda, we had Brenda Boo. Uh, we didn't have Cassidy, we had Sassidy. And we didn't have Shelby, but we had Shelby coming around the mountain when she comes. And so, if you know Tori, these all fit. Like, but, it, but it's endearing. It's kind of like, hey, you're kind of part of the in crowd. And, and I want to point out that Barnabas here, he was the first non-apostle. Um, uh, like, he wasn't with Jesus. So, he's one of the first ones that they're going to bring up that's going to be part of this in crowd and grow an influence to where ultimately we're going to see him go on these missionary journeys. It's going to be really important for the next part of the story to know that what, what, what's happening with him is he's growing in influence among the people to where he's even got a nickname. He's part of the crowd and he's growing as a leader among them. But it's not based on his money. It's based on his character. Now we've got to turn to the bad example. I'll read this whole passage here. It might take a minute. Now there was a man named Ananias together with his wife Sapphira also sold a piece of property. With his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself but brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. The Peter, then Peter said to Ananias, How is it that Satan has filled your heart, that you've lied to the Holy Spirit and kept for yourself some of the money you've received for the land? Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? You've not lied just to human beings, but to God. When Ananias heard this, he fell down and died, and great fear seized all who heard what happened. I'd say. And some men came forward and wrapped up the body and carried him out and buried him. About three hours later, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Peter asked her, tell me, is this the price that you and Ananias got for the land? Yes, she said, that is the price. Peter said to her, how could you conspire to test the Holy Spirit? 
Listen, the feet of the men who buried your husband are at the door. They'll carry you out also. At that moment, she fell down at his feet and died. Then the young men came in, finding her dead, carried her out, and buried her beside her husband. Great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. Difficult passage, I know. Let's just break it down with a few simple questions. What did they do? So, so what was it they did that day? They sold a piece of property, <laughs> they got the money for it, and they decided they wanted to keep some of it. And then they put on pretense to pretend like they had given all of it. So they were, they were lying, as Peter would say, to the Holy Spirit. They, they put on one thing, they said one thing uh, that wasn't true to try to earn the favor of the people. Now, what were the reasons why they did it? I don't think we can say for certain, but, but it seems to me that there are at least two that are pretty obvious. One, they just wanted the money. You might call it selfishness. Like they, they wanted to withhold it, whether, whether it was for like their own pleasures, like we want to go spend this and do stuff with it, or maybe it was for their own security. They just didn't trust God enough to give. And so they said, well, we're going to hold this back for our own security. So whether it was pleasure or security, there was just a selfishness that said, we want to hold on to this. There's probably a second motive though, and I think it's that they wanted glory. They were ambitious. Remember, selfish ambition. They were ambitious. They wanted to be recognized as having given all of this, but they still wanted to keep the money. They saw what Barnabas did. They saw what it said others had done. And I think somewhere in their heart, they said, I want that honor. Or, we want to be a part of this. Or something twisted in them and in their hearts made them give out of false motives. They wanted influence. They wanted glory. Or they wanted favor with God. They thought that they could actually buy favor with God by doing what they did. Or maybe they thought they could buy favor with man by if we do this, we'll be put in a place of influence. Either way, their heart was corrupted because true worship is always motivated by the gospel. That's why the whole view of giving in Scripture is that we give not out of compulsion, but we give joyfully out of our hearts, and we give in response to how God has loved us. Yet their reason for giving was so twisted that they wanted to save some, and they wanted to do it for their own sake, and that's what we actually call religion. Religion is when we try to do things to manipulate the favor of God. Religion is when we do things on the outside to try to put on pretense to impress other people. And this was the heart, the motive of what they were doing, putting on pretense, trying to earn favor with God and favor with man. And motives really matter, particularly when it comes to giving. I, I thought just right away when I was reading this of the way that Jesus talked about giving in his famous Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew 6, he says this, Be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. If you do, you'll have no reward from your Father in heaven. So when you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and the streets, to be honored by others. Truly, I tell you, they've received their reward in full. But when you give, do not let your left hand know what your right is doing, so that your money be, so that your, your giving may be in secret. Then your Father, who sees what's done in secret, will reward you. See, motives matter to God. Were they giving in a religious way? The religious way is trying to earn God's favor by doing something. The religious way is trying to put on pretense before others to earn their favor. Or were they doing like Barnabas did, truly giving, motivated by the gospel, joyfully giving everything freely? I want to say, too, this doesn't mean that we can't actually literally let our right hand know what our left hand's doing when we're giving. That would be kind of silly, right? It doesn't mean that we, we can't know who gives or we have to do everything in secret. Otherwise, we wouldn't have the story and the story of Barnabas. In fact, other people's giving is often used in Scripture to inspire more giving. 
I go back again to that 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 where, where Paul is actually trying to raise money for the church in Jerusalem. He's pointing at other churches and saying, man, look how generous they were. We, we should be motivated by that. So other people's examples can motivate us, but we have to be careful that our heart isn't twisted and we're doing things in a religious way. Let's look at how Peter interpreted it because he said two pretty powerful things. Peter said to Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you've lied to the Holy Spirit? And have kept this for yourself, the money that you received from the land. Did not it belong to you before it was sold? And after that, wasn't the money sold at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? You have not just lied to human beings, but to God. And then to uh, Sapphira, he says it this way. Peter said to her, how could you conspire to test the spirit of the Lord? He interprets both things as lying to the Holy Spirit and testing the Holy Spirit. Lying to the Holy Spirit is when we just put on pretense. We're just faking it. We're trying to do things to earn God's favor. We're just pretending. It's a type of thing that Jesus constantly confronted in the Pharisees. He would say that your heart is not with me. Uh, On the exterior, you're doing the right things, but your heart is not there. That's lying to the Holy Spirit, putting on pretense and testing the Holy Spirit. It's similar to saying, I want to do as much as I can do and see how much I can get away with, because what I really care about is me. What I really care about is I want to follow God just to the measure to which I'm comfortable just enough not to get his punishment, but enough to still do what I want to do. That's testing the Holy Spirit. And this is the way that Peter interpreted, doing just enough to try to stay in God's favor, but their heart was not right in their giving. Well, then what happened as a result? When Ananias heard this, he fell down and died, and great seer feasted all who heard what had happened. And then, same for Sapphira. That she died, and it says, "Great fear seized the whole church." It's kind of an understatement, right? I don't want to make light of the fact that they died, and I don't want to say that I know exactly uh, why it happened or why God did it this way. But fear seized the people. It's kind of a side to bring a little lighter note to this. Something very much like this story just happened recently at Midtown. You know, when we moved out of Baker, we had to sell a bunch of stuff. So God, God gave us a lot of favor, and we were able to sell all of our chairs to the church. We sold our screens to a church and to a school. And then one of the things that was a little bit difficult that we were trying to sell were these giant cabinets. I think we might have a picture of these cabinets. If you're part of the setup team, you know, like the Big Bertha, I guess they call it. So this giant piece of thing. Well, uh, about a year ago, we actually sold these to Matt Moore and his church, HTO. Some of you guys remember Matt Moore. We sold these to him, but he had no place to store them. We had a trailer that we could store them in, and we weren't planning on using the trailer anytime soon, so they just sat. So they were really his, but they were in our possession. Well, this became a problem when we started moving into here, because now we've got these three cabinets that are really his, but we have no space for them. So we called Matt, and we're like, Matt, dude, like these are yours. You need to, you need to come get these. They're kind of big, and he's like, I know, I don't really have any spot to, to store them. We said, well, yeah, neither do we, They're, but they are yours, so you should probably come get them. And, and we we're trying to just honor each other as best we could. And he was like, I'm like I can try to sell them for you, but I, only like for a week, because then you've got to figure out what to do with them. And we finally came to a point where he's like, look, man, if you can just sell them, i got no spot for them. I understand if you can just sell them for $300, they're about $1,000 each new. But he said, if you can sell like $100 each, just $300, that would help us out. That's great. So I'd already listed them for $750 on Craigslist, and then I list them for $300, and I get a call from someone who wants them for $300, but about an hour later, I get a call from someone who wants them for $750. And I'm like, oh, $750, gateway church it is. So so we kind of negotiate the deal, and Jake and I are in the office, and we're kind of like, Matt only wanted $300. 
for them. And like, like we've been storing them and he hasn't had to pay any storage. Maybe we could tell Matt, like, here's 300. And he could say, is that all that you had? And I told Jake, stop it, I don't want to die. (laughs) No, I'm not doing it. I will die on this Sunday when I teach this passage. No. (laughs) So he got all $750 and was very, very happy. And uh, Gateway Church is blessed. Other churches that we use is blessed. Uh, I make light of that, but the truth is, like, why did this happen? Man, I really, I really don't know. I don't have a good answer. Uh, some people will compare it to Joshua 7, which was kind of the, they first get into the land of Canaan. And if you remember, there was a sin of Achan, one guy who hoards some, God, some uh, of the idols, and God brings a severe judgment on Achan and his family. Maybe this is something similar at the start of the new church. I'm not personally satisfied with that. I, I'm at least the type of person who can just say, I don't know. But the reason I find myself able to say I don't know is because I know two other things. This is the exception, not the rule. Like why this happened, I don't know. But I do know that the very next passage we're going to read, you know what's not the exception? It's God healing people. It's God forgiving people and more people being added to the kingdom. So this is the exception. Go on, read the rest of the book of Acts. The very next thing we're going to say, like I said, people are going to be healed. They're not going to be struck dead. He's bringing people back from death. That's the norm that you see throughout the rest of this book. So I find comfort in that. And I also find comfort that the, normal, the norm is actually to ask for repentance. I still really am convinced that when, when he asked Sapphira, like, what did you do? Was this really what? That there was a chance right then for Sapphira to say, we lied. And he was said, you're forgiven. That's the norm that you see. In fact, I'm going to point us to one last scripture because there's another guy named Simon in Acts that actually tries to do something similar. He tries to use his money to buy favor, again, with God and with people. This is just after the Holy Spirit had kind of, through uh, the apostles, had fallen on a, um, a group of people. So that's the little context you'll see in this first sentence. When Simon saw how the Spirit was given, the laying on, <clears throat> given at the laying on of hands of the apostles, he offered them money and said, Give me also this ability, so that everyone whom I lay hands on may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter answered, may your money perish with you because you thought you could buy the gift of God with money. You have no part in the share in this ministry because your heart is not right. Repent of this wickedness and pray to the Lord in the hope that he may forgive you for having such a thought in your heart. I see that this is, uh, you are full of bitterness and captive to sin. This is really the norm. So when Peter sees this again, or when Paul sees, or yeah, this is Peter, sorry, when Peter sees it again, he says, look, man, this is your chance. You better repent. Like, don't do this with money. You can't do this. And the offer is just to repent. And that's the offer that's always here for us. It's the offer that I want us to reflect on when we come to communion. No one's going to die today, uh, although we are going to take uh, offering one more time, just to be sure. <laughs> just joking, just joking. These, these two examples give us a, a great time to do two things, to ask ourselves, I think, two questions. One is, are you holding something back from God? Has God put something on your heart that you know He wants, and you're, you're doing like they did, and you're, you're holding back? You know what it is. I'd encourage you when we take communion, ask that question. Is there something, God, that I know you're calling me to give, but I'm not willing to give it? And second... Are you serving in response to the gospel out of selfish ambition? These two examples paralleled next to each other give us a great chance to 
to ask our hearts and say, like, there's something in me that's, am I truly like just responding to the gospel and loving out of the goodness of God's love toward me? Or is there some sort of pretense, some sort of faking it that's going on? And that's where we just get to come to this table because that's what we do every week. When we come to remember what Jesus has done for us, it's another chance for us to be reminded and to tell God, man, God, make this real in my heart. Let me be motivated by the gospel to give generously and to care for the body of Christ and to be your witnesses. Motivate me by these truths that I'm reflecting on today. So as we take communion, I want you to to think about those things and ask yourself those two questions. Are you holding back anything from God? And are you serving in response to gospel or some selfish ambition? At Midtown, everyone's welcome as a believer in Jesus Christ uh, to take communion. You don't have to be part of our church. If you are still kind of investigating the faith and, and you wouldn't say that you've actually put your faith in Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, then we'd ask that you would refrain and, and wait until a time that you can say that you have put your faith in Christ. Uh, last week when we did communion, it was a little chaotic. It's a new space, and so we're going to try something new today. What we're going to try to do is have all communion kind of walk down this aisle to start. And so if you want to go out this way, this will be the kind of returning to your seats, and this will be the kind of coming down to receive communion. We'll try it. Either way, our hearts will be worshipful. Let me pray. God, we do just invite your spirit to speak. Show us, God, if we're, we're holding back something from you. Only you know what, what that could be for each of us individually. And show us, God, if we're serving truly motivated by the gospel or if there's some other pretense in there, some other motive. Uh, speak to us as we worship. Let our hearts fully engage you and be reminded today as we take communion of your deep love for us that you will give your only son Thank you, Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen.